Well, we're going to come around to the Word of God now. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 8 today, beginning at verse 4. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. And this is what it says. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell upon the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it. Some fell upon rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the words with joy when they hear it, but they have no roots. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand, so that those who come in can see the light. But there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, it will be taken away from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowds. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wait, wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and put it into practice. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite John to come and speak to us this morning. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity once again to gather around your word. We thank you for the challenge, even that there is by simply reading it aloud. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that it's you that illuminates the word of God to us. Lord, cause our hearts and our ears to hear today, we pray. And not only hear, may we be people who act upon your words. Lord, your word tells us that those who don't act upon your words are like someone who looks at their reflection in the mirror, sees what needs to be changed and does nothing about it. Lord, we don't want to be people like that. We want to be open to your Holy Spirit. Is leading and is guiding. So come, Lord Jesus. Bless John as he speaks to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. John, over to you. 
to find where it should be. Will somebody please wave at me if I start doing that, right? I'm not used to holding on mic anymore. I think this morning uh, from the parable uh, of of the the sower, as as it's called, is to ask the question, am I hearing the word of God? Uh, And from from the reading, you you will see that I've included uh, two little extra bits to the parable. Um, At the end, that's uh, uh, the the, the parable, the illustration of the light, the lamp on the table, and also of Jesus' mothers and brothers uh, wanting to talk to Jesus but couldn't get through. I put them there because those two two stories at the end of this talk of the parable of the seed, or the sower rather, in actual fact, contains the same line that is repeated throughout the parable of the sower, which is, let those who have ears to hear, hear. So in other words, they, they all apply to the same basic thing. Uh, and uh, when you, you, you look at this, you, you see that uh, uh, Jesus was sharing with uh, his disciples and crowds were coming from all over the place. In fact, if you read Mark's gospel, it says that they were so scared that Jesus would be trampled that, that they put him in a boat and they, he went out to sea to, to address them. But the crowds were coming uh, to, 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 to hear uh, Jesus. <clears throat> um, and if you read Luke 8 and verse 8, you'll find that while he was saying these, this parable and these other sayings, it says, I'll give you a literal translation of Luke 8 and verse 8. It says, while he was saying all this, he kept calling out, literally shouting, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So when you read the parable through, as Luke has just done uh, there for us, it interjected between those lines at each point, Jesus stopped, raised his voice louder than he was when talking to folk and addressed the crowd and says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. No, there was a, there's an element, I don't know whether it's frustration, but anyway, he, he, he wanted them to hear. In other words, Jesus, as, as, as Mark, again, as Mark records, uh, that when, when they came together, Jesus knew that they had come to see his miracles. That's why they were gathering. They were pressing in. They wanted the, the news of this miracle maker and this, this sort of great uh, uh, teacher uh, was going out. And the folk came and said, we're going to see this. And they, they came to see him. <clears throat> and, and he knew that... Many, or maybe even the majority, they had ears, they were listening to what he was saying, but they weren't actually hearing what he was saying. And I can't help thinking, sorry, this is a bit of my quirky background, but I I can't help but thinking of of what a guy called Alan Greenspan said. He was the chair of the United States Federal uh, Bank or Federal Reserve from 1987 to 2006. And he said to a congressional hearing who were challenging what he was trying to do for the economy in America, and I think it's very appropriate to this parable, this parable's here. This is what he said to them after they had fired their questions at him. It's all recorded for us. He says, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I, well, not what I meant. In other words, he was speaking, but they weren't getting it. And this is what this passage is all about. People hearing, but not actually getting what Jesus was saying. And so in Luke, in Luke 8 and verse 4, we, we read that this large crowd had gathered people are streaming in to hear. 
There's a vast crowd. There's a huge crowd. And if you read Mark 3, I always think it's good to compare the Gospels because they're, they're different people's perspective on what happened. But Mark, he records for us what Peter, this is Peter's personal remembrance of, of, of all of this. He was the one closest, one of those closest to Jesus. Uh, and, and in there, it, it, it records there, I love this, about when Jesus' mothers and brothers and mother and brothers were coming. It's in, in, in Mark 3, it says that Mary and Jesus' brothers were trying to speak to Jesus because they thought he was mad. So you've got that lovely insight there of this interplay that's going on in, in, in the family there. Uh, they thought he was mad. And when he had finished, the crowd simply dispersed. They all went away, and all that were left were his disciples, 12, plus a, a, another sort of group of people. We're not told how many, but a, a, a significant number of people. And when, uh, when they gather together, they come to Jesus and, and they say to him, here in Luke, he says, why do you speak in parables all the time? Why do you speak in parables? Why don't you just speak plainly? In the other Gospels, in Mark and Luke, uh, Mark and Matthew, they actually ask, what did you actually mean when you said that? So in other words, these guys got it. But it's, it's Jesus' reply to this question that I find is quite staggering. In Luke 8, verse 9 and 10, we read this. The knowledge, this is what Jesus says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God had been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables so that, and he quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 6, which is a, a, some words of judgment from God through the prophet Isaiah on a people who have been stubbornly refusing to hear God. And in Isaiah 6, this is what he said. This is what Isaiah said, and Jesus applies it to hear. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. And if you read Matthew and Mark, they add the next verse of, of Isaiah 9, which says... You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They barely hear with their ears. They barely see with their eyes. And they barely understand with their hearts and turn that I would heal them. That was Jesus' explanation of this, this uh, question. Why do you speak in parables? Well, we can say it was twofold. One, it was an act of judgment. It was an act of judgment. And that's, you know, I'm doing this so that they, they won't understand because they don't want to understand, they don't listen. But on the other hand, it was a mark of grace because there were some who did understand. And they are here identified as those who come along and say, can you say that again, Jesus? We didn't quite get what you said on what you meant. I wonder, my friends, does that describe you? When you read the Bible, when you hear the word of God, whether it's preached or, or whatever. Is that you? You see, in the parables, there's always a, a little enigma in the parables that seems to suggest this isn't what you think you're hearing. This is about something else. Now, for, for instance, in the parable of the lost sheep... And he says to farmers, which of you, having a hundred sheep, 
finds that one of them has wandered off. Which of you wouldn't leave the 99 and go and find the one? And there isn't a shepherd in the world that said, oh, of course. They say, you're off your rocket. We're not going to abandon 99 sheep to go looking for one stupid one. And of course, the point of that parable is, Jesus did, or God did. It's speaking of God's outrageous determination to reach just the one. There are several others. For instance, the prodigal son. There you've got the ungrateful, inheritance-squandering, immoral, pig-contaminated son, and he's joyously welcomed back and preferred over his seemingly righteous brother. And everything in you says, hang on, that's not fair. And yet again, what's it pointing to? God's outrageous grace. It doesn't add up. But God says, I've done it in any case. I've loved you even though you despise me. What about the, the dishonest servant who's apparently honored for defrauding his employer? I want to say, call the cops. <laughs> but, but no, it's used as, as the, as, in a way to make folks say, what are you saying? And of course, if they ask him, he would tell you, but I'm not preaching on, on that one today. But the last one, illustration, we've got the rough sleeper who's invited to a wedding feast, but he refuses the gift of new clothing. Yeah, you ask any rough sleeper in the town, would you refuse a new set of clothes? <laughs> the answer is absolutely not. But here the sower, he's, he's being uncharacteristically careless in allowing fast-growing, life-sapping, thorn-laden bushes to grow in his field. Because that's what he's got here. I know he says some of the seed landing on the path, and that was hard. And some of the, some of the seed fell on, on rocky soil. We'll come to that in a minute. But, but overall, it's, it's, you know, he, he's, he's saying here that, that this, this farmer is just throwing the seed out. Uh, and, and everything about it says, oh, hang on, Jesus. Gonna, I can't see a farmer doing it. We know that a little bit of seed would go, but... He would have at least dug his field and got the weeds out before he started sowing seed. No, no farmer, I, I love gardening. I, I, I don't plant into my weed seed, weeds. I, I clear my weeds out and get rid of them. I compost them, right? That's all they're good for. You see, everything that you read in this screams out, what on earth is going on here? What on earth is going on here? And so the disciples come and they say, what is going on here? Explain it to us, Jesus. And Jesus immediately tells them what it's about. And he tells them that it's not the story about the sower. It's not even a story about the seed. He said, it's the story of the soil. And he says, the soil is a metaphor for your hearts. The soil is a description of your hearts. Soil that's been prepared and willing and eager and able to receive the word of God. The seed is the word of God. And he then proceeds to present everybody that's alive and are able to hear the word of God. He presents them under four classes of people and their response to the word of God. So as I said, it's not a parable about the sower, or ultimately 
the, the, the fields, but it's about the, the soil, their hearts. And your, your, your responsibility when you hear the word of God is to ask yourself, what is my heart attitude to what you're saying, God? It's about how you respond, how you are responding to God's word right now when you hear it or when you read it. And let's just quickly go through those four scenarios before I apply what I believe Jesus is saying about this hearing. The first group of people, he says, are, are those who simply hear the word, but their hearts, and by that scripture always means their desires, their emotions, are described as that well-worn, sun-baked path, hard as nails. There's no way for the seed, the word of God, to penetrate it. No way for the seed to influence it or change them. So the seed, the word, gets either crushed underfoot or bird-like, the evil one snatches them away, the seeds away, so that, as in verse 12 of chapter 8, it says, so that they cannot believe or be saved. By saved there, it means be changed, affected. Here's a heart hardened by the knocks of life, by bitter experience, or perhaps even of arrogant self-belief. It's the I do it my way on the highway sort of guy who really has no place for God, who says, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with facts. I'm happy as I am. And my friend, if that's you, then this morning I pray with all the heart and grace and love in the world that God makes you unhappy. So you might even begin to listen to what he actually says. But the second group of people, it's in verses 6 and also in verse 13, because you've got the parable and then Jesus' explanation of it in, in the, the, the second verse. There's the seed, it fell on the rock. And that, that doesn't picture soil that's rocky, because farmers will pick the rocks out of the soil when they plow. It, it refers to the bedrock. Uh, it, it pictures those places in the terrain where you have a, a seam of bedrock that's just inches below the surface. It was very common in Galilee. In fact, you can't find much soil <laughs> in that area. There isn't something like that. But seed sown there would have the initial advantage of warmer soil. And it would quickly sprout and it would quickly begin to grow. But because there was no depth to the soil, it would equally as quickly dry out and die because it just cannot live. And here Jesus' interpretation of this is found in verse 13. He says, yes, they, they receive it with lots of initial joy and enthusiasm. But because they have no depth, they fall away. Yes, my friends, there's lots to be, as it were, excited about and joyful about in the gospel. But I would say woe to the preacher and woe to the hearer that sugarcoats the gospel to make it sound as if God's saying, come to me and everything will be all right all the time. Because we know that that is simply not true. Everything is not fun when you come to faith in Jesus. And such a person who thinks that that's true, he comes to faith and then suddenly finds that people don't like him then finds that he's got difficult choices to make. And when that happens, he quickly falls away. In other words, he's not prepared to face the cost and the consequences. 
Did you consider in the scripture the many times that Jesus warned his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you? He was honest, wasn't he, with them? All the way through, Jesus was honest. Some of you are going to die. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but that's, that's what he was saying to him. But these people hear it, they quickly accept it, but then the cost becomes too great. And they fall away. And Jesus even went as far as saying that following me might include splitting your family, losing friends, losing employment. Do you remember that when Jesus sent Ananias to baptize Paul and to pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit, he was to tell him how much he was to suffer for my name. I thought, great, welcome to the club, Jesus. Welcome to the club, Paul. God's got great things for you. Boy, you're going to suffer. <laughs> Peter writing to the church at large in 1 Peter 5 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But it's after. Or we might even say through. Such things, the difficulties in, in the life of a believer, are they are designed to restore and confirm and strengthen to establish. The genuine believer is made strong by them. He's made firmer in his faith. I always remember when training as a prison governor, uh, Sir Monty Finiston was the, the, the guy who was the head of the management studies. Uh, and he turned around and said to us, he said, do you realize where I've made all of my greatest advances, uh, advances in management? And we said, no. He said, by all the screw-ups I made. <laughs> in other words, I learned. We, we screw up. We have difficulties. And through it, somehow God strengthens us. But this person doesn't recognize that, doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't see it. And so just in, for this one, never forget, my friends. Never forget that excitement and enthusiasm, though great to see, is not necessarily evidence of real faith. You can all, even now, perhaps be thinking of somebody you know who seemed to accept the gospel, come to faith, and for a while was going great guns, and then suddenly, gone. Fallen away. No longer following. In history, far too many people were immediately acclaimed as remarkable examples of conversion, especially if they're a celebrity, and often with tragic results. The third group, these are those where the seed fell amongst these thorns that I spoke of earlier. The thorns have perhaps been cut down, but they've not been eradicated. And so the seed went into the soil and it began to grow. But so did the thorns. But thorns, the Cuba plant, that's what he's referring to, the Cuba thorn, right? So the thorn that they made Jesus around his head, uh, that's the Cuba plant. The Cuba grows phenomenally quickly. It grows up to two meters tall and it's very bushy. Just imagine a puny little seed of wheat. It wouldn't have a chance. And it dies because it loses its sustenance, it loses light, and it can't 
it can't grow. And so Jesus says of these people, as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, by riches and by pleasure. And Matthew, who was actually there when Jesus said these things, records Jesus' words in Matthew 13 and verse 15. And he identifies these things, these th things that hold him back and cause him to fall away. He says, they are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that are choking them to death. And Jesus is clear. You can't serve God and the world. You can't serve God and money. Anything you love more than God becomes an idol and takes you away from God. We've all seen such folk. It breaks our hearts when they don't listen, when we find, and we find no consolation in being proved right, when their last estate is worse than their first. They won't listen to godly wisdom, and they get enticed by the suggestion that they can do such and such and, uh, uh, in their walk with God, and it won't affect their walk with God. And of course, it does affect their walk with God. They're so besotted by this life that they lose sight of the fact that compared with eternity, this life is infinitely short. Have you ever heard of Francis Chan? He's a great um, preacher uh, uh, from the States. He, uh, I was going to get the video, but I didn't know how to get it from there to there and to, to you guys at the back there. All right, but anyway, um, it's a video where, where he preaches. And he, he, says, <clears throat> he says, life for the believer is like a rope. And he goes across the stage and he picks up a rope. Right, and he starts walking across the stage. And the rope it's, it's, it goes along and he's going up and down the stage and pulling this rope out. And he said, that's the believer. And then he holds up the bit of rope and he says, this little bit with the red tape on, this is the whole of your life on earth. Which is more important? This or this? These folk just don't get that. They think here is what we're living for. Here is what's most important. I'm not saying it's not important, but they think it's most important. And they get distracted by those and say, well, this has got to come first. The mortgage has got to come first. The education has got to come first. A house has got to come first. You know, a new car has got to come first. All holidays every year has got to come first. Otherwise, our children will feel that they've been left out. My employment promotion has got to come first. And those things swamp them. And their end result is that they fall away or they're screwed up. Or well, remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. But fourthly, and this is the main one, in Luke 8 and verse 8 and then verse 15, we're told that the seed that fell on the good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word and retain it and by persevering produce a good crop. And Luke says up to 100%. That's good multiplication. And so if we apply this, my friend, all those, those four illustrations... These parables serve as both an encouragement to Jesus' followers and a warning to his hearers. The encouragement is that when we see people respond superficially and subsequently fall away, we should not be too discouraged because even Jesus faced the same. 
I'm always encouraged when I read this that sometimes when you're preaching, you're looking at folk and you can see in their eyes they're not getting what you're saying. At least I can turn around and say, well, it, it probably is my inability to explain it. But it could possibly be just like Jesus. You know, they don't want to hear it. But the warning is that those who hear the parable and fall away are those in which ultimately there is no faith at all. And I want to ask you this morning, from the bottom of my heart, how do you hear the word of God? And then Jesus goes on in his explanation and he says, those who hear this word and retain it in their hearts, he says, those are the ones who, by perseverance, produce a great crop. Fundamentally, my friends, the only outward expression of your faith that can be measured is by the amount of fruit that comes from the faith that you profess. I'll say that again. Ultimately, the only part of your faith that can be measured is the fruit that that faith produces in your life. The good crop. True faith results in perseverance. It might be, and that faith might produce a fruit that's 20%, 30%, 50%, or even 100%, but never 0%. There's a great commentary on, on uh, Luke. It's by Daniel Brock. It's in the IVP series, and he says this. Faith saves. <clears throat> the absence of faith does not. So to believe for a time and not to believe in a commendable way Since the end result is not faith. So to, so to believe for a time and not to believe in a commendable way, in the end result, it's not faith. One cannot end up unbelieving and have faith that saves. Because if so, salvation will come through unbelief. You see, faith if it is genuine, this is what Jesus is talking about. Faith if it's genuine is permanent, and our problems lay in the fact that we tend to view it as a response to the moment. How many times do we say, and how many times do we hear somebody say, well, how's so-and-so going? Oh, he, uh, he's not walking with the Lord at the moment. Ah, oh, but he gave his heart to Jesus when he was six. As if that is a comfort. There is no comfort at all. Because Jesus says, if the seed is received, it will grow in a life. Some faster than others, yes. Some more than others, yes. But it will grow. It won't cease to be. Faith saves. The absence of faith does not. And my friends, to, to emotionally protect ourselves, you know, we do reason that, well, they once believed, but Jesus doesn't say here, once believe. He doesn't say they once heard. He says they are hearing. Those who, 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 who listen to me and are saved, as it were, are those who are hearing my word. Hearing, constant tense, present tense. 
faith, true faith is not based on having believed, but on believing. And this might be simplistic, but it's as close as I can get to a parable. A baby lives because it, it baby does not live because it took a breath. It lives because it's still breathing. And based on this understanding, when facing temporary faith in the early church, they were clear. For instance, in 1 John 2 and verse 19, this is what they said. They, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might become plain that they were never part of us. See, they understood that. That's not a callous statement. That's an honest statement. I'd rather be honest with somebody because it means I'm not going to fool them into thinking, oh, it's all right. And I believe that this morning the concluding questions for us all to consider is where is our heart now? You've heard the words, but have you heard what was being said? Is your heart, as Jesus described it, good and noble, in which the seed of faith produces a rich harvest? From my perspective, and it's a very limited one, I accept that. I'm just one individual. But from my perspective, as, as a preacher of four decades and more, My heartache is when I see folk who, who I have seen respond to the word of God and I go and meet them and it's obvious that they're not in the same universe as God anymore. It breaks my heart. And I've learned to have the courage of my own convictions and tell them, you are totally nullifying anything you had before. Second thing and question to consider is, you do have ears to hear, but are you hearing? Are you heeding God's word right now? Are you hearing and heeding God's word right now? Maybe God has told you to do something. Well, in heaven's name, go and do it. God has told you to leave something off. Well, for everybody's sake, especially yours, stop doing it. You have ears to hear, so show that you're hearing. Respond to that word. And unless you fall into the category of that third group of people, ask yourself this question. Are you trying to mold your faith around your life or molding your life around your faith? There's a vast difference between the two. Rationalizing your faith so that it fits with your life rather than changing your life in order that it fits your faith. I'm not talking about legalism now. I'm talking about heart. There are some stuck-up prudes out there who will go around and boast how much they've changed and given up for God. Well, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Pray for them. That God would open their eyes to their own stupidity. But my friends, it's downright tragic, isn't it? When folk hear the word of God appear to change, and then later on, the, worst state, the end state is worse than the first. Are you molding your face around your life or molding your life around your face? And some, just to clear this up, because some of you know my history. They say, John, do you not preach 
once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation. Have you changed your mind? Absolutely not. I have not changed my mind. Because I never said, if you, you know, once you're saved, you can do what you want. What I've always tried to say is that those who truly are saved will endure. They might stumble. They might fall. They might fall a long way. They might collapse into a heap. But the call of God in their heart draws them back. I'm saying once saved, always saved, yes. But once saved, you will endure. You will go on. You will grow. My friends, this morning, please hear my heart speaking. Hear my heart. I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but I want to ask, is your life now? You've walked with the Lord for I don't know how many decades. But does that life still have the same life and light and joy and enthusiasm and determination in it as it had at the first? If not, why not? Jesus this morning is saying to you, screaming to you, not me, Jesus is screaming to you. He who has ears to hear, if you have ears to hear, then says Jesus in heaven name, hear what I'm saying. And walk with me and spend eternity with me. Father, grant this please, that we may be those who are hearers, not simply of words, but hearers of what you're actually saying. Mold and shape our hearts, Lord. Let them be good and noble, Father, please, that receive your word, take it into itself, that it produces life and fruit in much abundance. Do this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.